Hello and welcome to episode 19 of the Main Polis Podcast. For this episode, I've gone through the list of bills that have been approved to be presented for consideration in the upcoming second session of Maine's 131st State Legislature. Uh, a few weeks ago, the Legislative Council, which is the administrative body for the legislative branch of Maine State Government, it consists of the 10 elected members of legislative leadership. So the Senate President, Democrat Troy Jackson of uh, Aroostook, the Speaker of the House, Rachel Ross of Portland, the Republican and Democratic leaders of the Senate, along with their assistants. So Senate Majority Leader, Democrat Eloise Vitelli of Saginaw County and her assistant Democrat Senator Maddie Dougherty of Cumberland County. And then Senate Minority Leader, Republican Trey Stewart of Aroostook County and his assistant, Senator Lisa Keem of Oxford County. And the same for the House. House Majority and Minority Leaders, Democrat Maureen Terry of Gorham and Republican Billy Bob Falkingham of Winter Harbor, respectively, along with their assistants, Democrat Christian Klitscher of Lewiston and Republican Amy Arada of New Gloucester. The Legislative Council convenes and the council members elect a chair and vice chair at the beginning of each legislative biennium. And the tradition is the chair positions alternate between the Senate and the House every two years. And they're set up like any other committee or board would operate. They basically make decisions following Robert's Rules of Order, along with whatever additional rules they decide to govern themselves with. And this group wields a good amount of power on how a legislative session is going to work. What bills will have a chance on the floor or even in a committee. It's an elite group of main politicians that few really know about. Okay, so one of the things they do is basically screen any bills that are going to be introduced after the deadline that's set for introduction of new bills during the first legislative session. And the deadline was, I think, last spring sometime. Anyway, it's long past for this session. So any representative that wants to introduce a bill during this second session of the legislature has to have it approved by the Legislative Council. And so what I've done is gone through that list of bills that were approved to be introduced when they reconvene after the holidays. Now, they haven't released any of the text for the bills yet, so all we can go off is the title. But I've pulled a few that I think could be interesting and I think are worth discussing. The first one, or the first couple that caught my eye, have to do with illegal cannabis grows in Maine. If you're not familiar with what's been going on and some of the reports coming out of the Maine Wire the past few weeks... But they got a hold of a leaked memo from the Department of Homeland Security that claims that about 270 properties in Maine are actively used by some sort of illegal Chinese drug cartel. Here's a quote from the Maine Wire. Local, state, county, and federal officials speaking mostly on the condition of anonymity have confirmed to the Maine Wire that various law enforcement agencies have known about this foreign network of illicit drug manufacturing and distribution for more than two years. End quote. According to the same article, on September 15th, DHS sent the following memo to Maine law enforcement asking for help gathering intel on the properties. Quote, and this is from the leaked memo. We are requesting a response by state, county, and or local law enforcement officials with any information regarding illegal marijuana grows being operated in their areas by suspected Asian transnational criminal organizations. This collection effort is supporting a national intelligence gathering initiative 
to identify a comprehensive picture of the threat posed to national security by Asian transnational criminal organizations operating illegally in the United States, end quote. A little further down in the article, they report that, quote, according to the DHS memos, the sites are operated by Chinese foreign nationals, some who are in the U.S. illegally. DHS believes the network earns an estimated total income of $4.37 billion per year, some of which is returned to entities in the People's Republic of China, end quote. <clears throat> According to the main wire, who had a reporter actually go out and locate some of these illegal grows and interview neighbors, they found one example in the town of Mexico that's within a school zone and close enough to a daycare that they can smell it in their playground. So they're doing something that is already defined as illegal in Maine, yet they appear to be operating with impunity from state laws. Other towns of the main wire appears to have confirmed the presence of these illegal grow operations include Fairfield, Emden, Madison. There's a few outliers in southern Oxford and northern Cumberland counties, but the bulk of the locations the main wire are confirming are basically scattershot up the 95 corridor, starting in Androscoggin County, across Kennebec and Somerset counties, and into Penobscot County. And if you have no idea what's been going on with any of this, then I'd recommend just going to themainwire.com and reading some of their triad weed articles. They've been doing reporting on it for a bit, and I'll put a few of their links in the show notes. But because of that reporting, and because of the fact that, for some reason, that really isn't clear to anyone yet, the cops aren't just shutting these places down. They're in places not zoned for that type of commercial grow. They're blowing out transformers, threatening neighbors, and dropping trash along neighboring properties. For example, one neighbor specifically explains picking up empty packs of Chinese brand cigarettes along their property. Local, state, and federal authorities have confirmed they're aware of the situation, yet these illegal grows continue to operate with impunity within our state. Best case scenario is that it was part of an ongoing investigation, but the main wire shined a light on it that I can't imagine didn't end with more pressure than either the feds or the Chinese crime organization were expecting to feel. So anyway, because of all that, we had a couple of bills pitched to be added to the second session. One from Representative Michael Sobleski from Phillips, and another from Representative John Andrews from Paris. Sobleski's bill, titled An Act to Provide Investigative Authority to the Maine State Police, Sheriffs, and Local Police Regarding Maine's Recreational Cannabis Laws and Ordinances to Ensure Proper Enforcement, did not get the okay to go to the floor. But the Andrews bill, titled An Act to Combat Racketeering by Foreign Organizations in Maine's Cannabis Markets, that one got the go-ahead. So, this will be an interesting discussion that the Maine Wire has forced upon our state. Another bill that caught my eye, sponsored by Senate President Troy Jackson of Aroostook County, titled An Act to Provide Investment Incentives to Keep the Portland Sea Dogs in the State. Okay, first off, I didn't realize conversations about the Sea Dogs leaving were happening, let alone to a degree to justify a legislative action. What I do know is that ownership of the Sea Dogs recently changed hands. Here's a quote from a Portland Press-Herald article from December 2022. Quote, After three decades of local ownership, the Portland Sea Dogs are being sold to an organization that operates minor league baseball teams across the country. Bill Burke, chairman of the Sea Dogs, announced the team sale Tuesday to Diamond Baseball Holdings, which in just 12 months has become the largest operator of minor league baseball franchises. 
The Sea Dogs, whose inaugural season was 1994, have been in the Burke family since Dan Burke successfully applied for an Eastern League expansion franchise in 1992. End quote. Other articles that were published around that time and even last spring speak somewhat glowingly of Diamond Baseball Holdings and efforts not to make drastic changes to whatever the fan is seeing and experiencing, but more just an ability to do, say, bulk merchandise orders at a much larger scale. But the takeaway I got was that they're still associated with the Red Sox, they'll still be called the Sea Dogs, and you can still stuff your face with a dog biscuit and an outrageously priced beer. Now, and I could be wrong, but I don't recall state legislative action being taken to entice either the Portland Pirates or Lewiston Maniacs from leaving our state. But this is definitely something that does happen in other cities and states. And from a public policy perspective, its merits have been debated for decades. A specific example would be the idea that a state or city should willingly take on some portion, if not all, of the cost to construct a new stadium, along with the public infrastructure to support it. And sports teams will leave if they don't get what they want. Sometimes it's a new stadium, but it could also just be sweetheart tax breaks to benefit the franchise. Or in the case of the new semi-pro soccer team coming to Portland, they'll get to use Fitzpatrick Stadium for free for 10 years, and the team agrees to make capital improvements to the stadium. And the argument being that the total net benefit to the local economy of having this team playing in your city or your state justifies using taxpayer resources to keep them or attract them. Those opposed to this type of policy question the ethics of using public funds and tax dollars to effectively bribe a privately owned professional sports team from either leaving your city or state or convincing them to come to your city or state. Another real-world example of this debate is currently playing out between Oakland and Las Vegas. It was recently announced that the Oakland Athletics were moving to Las Vegas, and here's a quote from a local ABC affiliate in California. Quote, after years of complaints about the Oakland Coliseum and an inability to gain government assistance for a new ballpark in the Bay Area, the A's plan to move to a stadium to be built on the Las Vegas Strip with $380 million in public financing approved by the Nevada government, end quote. So, basically, they were having negotiations with the city of Oakland on getting a new stadium as part of an Oceanside development project, but the athletics ownership wasn't really liking what the city of Oakland was offering. Whatever deal they were working out wasn't as attractive as what Las Vegas was offering, a brand new 30,000 seat stadium with a retractable roof and a state legislature willing to dedicate 380 million tax dollars to the project. How can the city of Oakland compete? They can't, which is why they lost the Raiders to Las Vegas a few years ago as well. So, like I said earlier, I knew the Sea Dogs had new corporate ownership, but I wasn't aware that conversations of the Sea Dogs leaving had already become so serious as to justify providing state-level investment incentives. So I'm very interested to see what the language of this bill is going to look like, and who provides testimony in support of it. And the fact that it wasn't one of the reps or senators from Cumberland County or Portland, it's coming from an Aroostook County Senator, Troy Jackson, the Senate President himself and the current chair of the Legislative Council. And I'm just speculating here, but my guess is that he didn't come up with this idea all on his own. So I'm looking forward to seeing who speaks in support of this one and why. Okay, another one that everyone in Maine should know about, especially if you spend time in areas where there are ticks, 
sponsored by Senator James Libby of Cumberland County, an act to require the reporting of alpha-gal syndrome. What is alpha-gal syndrome? Alpha-gal syndrome is a tick-borne disease that causes a person to become allergic to red meat. They believe it's being transmitted to humans by the Lone Star Tick. So picture a tick with a white marking on its back. Lone Star Ticks are a type of tick that had not been in Maine historically, but there have been reports that they're here now. So consider this also a public service announcement. Those things are in Maine, so be on the lookout. And if you come across a Lone Star Tick, maybe preserve it and let the State Wildlife Agency know about it. And if you get bit by one, even if you get it out intact and the bite is manageable, maybe check in with a doctor and let them know you got bit by a Lone Star Tick. Okay, another one that could get interesting, depending on the language and what they're trying to do, was proposed by House Majority Leader and Member of the Legislative Council, Representative Maureen Terry of Gorham. An act to amend the recapture penalty imposed under the Farm and Open Space Tax Law. Alright, so what the Farm and Open Space Tax Law does is offers farmers and landowners with some desirable open space that they'd like to protect from development and also probably permit the public to have access in the case of open space, a tax abatement program that basically works like this. When the town assessor shows up at the local farm that has a good portion of their land enrolled in the farm and open space tax program, the assessor is not allowed to look at that parcel of land and assess its value based on what it could be, only at what it's actually being used for. So for example, if Mr. and Mrs. Farmer have 20 acres of pasture land, the assessor can't look at that and say, well, what you have is a parcel that could potentially be 10 separate two acre lots and then tax Mr. and Mrs. Farmer based on its potential use, not its actual use. They can't do that. They can only assess it based on what it's actually being used for, a pasture. And it's the same with open space. Say you got some land in Wyndham or Westbrook or someplace outside Portland under housing development pressure. It's got a little trail, goes out to a cool bluff or something, or it goes along a river for part of it, and there's a bunch of wildlife there. If you agree to put the land into the open space program, then it can only be assessed as open space. They can't assess it as a potential house lot with a mountain view, or as an undeveloped waterfront property with ocean access. It's just open space. So when the local property tax assessor comes along to assess the value of the pasture or open space parcel or whatever, they can't base their assessment on what similar parcels in town have sold for. So it limits what the assessor can look at as a comparable property. And so the landowner is able to keep their property tax from being tied to the value of land as house lots. And the collective benefit of letting them pay less taxes is that we can continue to have access to a stable local food shed and a thriving agro-tourism sector. It protects wildlife habitat and in many cases provides the public a space to enjoy the outdoors. And there's also data supporting the idea that having a large open space parcel increases the property value of nearby properties. The laws are technically separate for farmland and open space, but the penalties for withdrawing from them is the same. If the landowner wants to withdraw from the program and sell off some house lots, or new landowners want to withdraw from it and do the same, then they'll end up paying a penalty on however much land they remove from the program. And depending on how long the land has been in the program will depend on how that penalty is figured out. 
If it's been five years or less, then what they'll do is figure out what you would have paid for each of those five years if the land hadn't been in the program. And then they'll subtract what you did pay and require that you pay the difference plus interest for each of those years up to five years. Now, if the land had been in the program between six and ten years, rather than having to pay the full difference between what you did pay versus what you would have paid, you would pay only 30% of that difference. And I don't think that would include interest. Then, if it was in the program for 11 years, then they'd have to pay 29%, 12 years, 28%, and all the way down to 20% for land in the program for 20 years or more. Which, I actually had done a lot of research on this program, maybe like 20 years ago. It's been a while, but I don't recall percentages like that in the program. I'm pretty sure it worked more like what I described for the five years or less scenario, with maybe some sort of cap at some point. I can't remember for sure, but this program may have seen a softening of the penalty over the years. And this is one of those that can have good and bad. It's helpful for people that want to keep and operate their farm, as well as keep open space for future generations, and still be able to afford the property tax rates that tend to go up as development pressure mounts. But it can also hinder growth. It removes large tracts of land from housing development potential during, say, a housing shortage that's causing the price to own a home in certain towns to be astronomical when compared to what people actually earn. And I should reiterate that the bill's sponsor, Representative Terry of Gorham, is one of those towns that has and continues to experience some of that housing development pressure I've been talking about. So it'll be very interesting to see what it is Representative Terry has in mind. Okay, let's see. Speaker Rachel Ross of Portland is going to be proposing an act to enact a farm worker bill of rights. That'll be an interesting one too. In the past, they've usually tried including a minimum wage requirement for farm workers, which sounds good, but always hits a big pushback from any farm that employs temporary workers. People that are out picking apples by the bushel or raking blueberries by the pound for three weeks out of the year you can't require farms to pay these people $13.80 an hour and expect any of those farms to exist. And it's not the farmer's fault, it's just the economic reality of our current situation. And to require the farmers that feed us to suffer the consequences is both callous and short-sighted. And to be clear, I don't mean to sound callous to seasonal farm workers, but some of this comes from my own experiences and observations. If you're a seasonal farm worker, you're not getting paid by the hour because you're getting paid by the amount you pick. So, if in an hour, you rake up like, I don't know, 60 pounds of blueberries, and the other guy rakes up like only 30 pounds of blueberries, then you get paid more than the other guy. And frankly, if the job is to pick an entire field before the harvest goes bad, and you pick twice as much as someone else, then you should be paid twice as much. It doesn't seem fair otherwise. And even if it were considered fair, why should you then continue working twice as hard, sweating out under the sun, when you know you'll get paid the same amount for working half as hard, taking longer breaks, and picking where there's shade. Who cares if the field doesn't get done in time? The pay is the same either way. Farmers can't operate under those economic conditions. It'll ruin them. And the retail markup, if they were to attempt it, would devastate our state's agricultural sector's ability to compete with imports from places that don't require anywhere near as high a pay rate for seasonal farm work. We can even apply it to the U-Pick apple orchards across the state. They don't charge customers based on how long it took them to pick their apples. They charge them based on how many pounds of apples they picked. Charging by the hour would ruin them and make no sense for a farm wanting to stay in business. 
These aren't supposed to be a full or even part-time jobs. It'll last for a few weeks and then that person moves on to something else. It's why a lot of high schoolers in Maine end up doing it for summer work or why Jamaicans and others come to Maine for a couple months a year and earn enough to live well back home. So this will be another interesting bill to follow. I am sort of assuming that there'll be something about a minimum wage for farm workers, but maybe I'll be wrong. But I'd still imagine there'll be something in there about farm worker pay. So maybe it'll be some sort of compromise, but we'll see what the language says. Okay, I'll do one more for today. And it's one being sponsored by Senator Chip Curry of Waldo. An act to protect property owners by preventing the use of eminent domain to build transmission lines under the Northern Maine Renewable Energy Development Program. So, if you didn't know, in addition to the New England Clean Energy Connect project through the Western Maine Mountains that is happening despite the wishes of communities, elected officials, and voters statewide, is happening anyway... Well, there's a separate project trying to build another transmission line of some sort through Eastern Maine now, and this is likely an attempt to get ahead of it a bit better than the one that ended up being mandated through Western Maine, even though that one was opposed from everyone except the Maine PUC and Governor Mills. So this will be another one that will be interesting to see who comes out against or in favor and why. Alright, I guess that's good. There's a few others that I was going to look at, but I also wanted to see how quick I could spin out one of these. So maybe I can come back and look at a few more before the second session officially starts. As the actual language for these bills are released, I'll probably try and do a follow-up episode, or at least try and track these on the website, themainpolis.com, whether it be with quick write-ups or posting links to where the bill and any testimony can be read. And... I've been experiencing a bit more with having the comments on for people. I mostly don't do it because I don't want to deal with spam. But I think I'll have the comments on for this episode. So go to themainpolls.com, look for the page for episode 19. You'll find any sources or links I use for this episode. And you can also share what you think about it, any of this. But for now, that's all I got. Thanks for listening.